You're listening to a Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 10th annual Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at the Royal Irish Academy on the 19th and 20th of August 2022. The conference was generously supported by the Royal Irish Academy and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media in association with History Hub. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of a paper by John Marshall from Trinity College Dublin, entitled Legitimising Tudor and Stuart Rule in Ireland, the 13th century Marshall Partition as Early Modern Propaganda. In 1541, King Henry VIII of England was declared King of Ireland by the Irish Parliament. Now, Henry was the first King of England to be declared as such, as his predecessors had been Dominus Hiberniae, that is, Lord of Ireland, uh, from the late 12th century onwards. Henry VIII becoming King of Ireland fits into a more general consolidation of centralised crown power in Ireland, at the expense of the near-autonomous lords that had dominated the country since 1170. Against this backdrop of the reassertion of royal authority in Ireland during the 16th century and the later turmoil of the bloody 17th century, some contemporary writers looked to the past and sought to link the Tudor and Stuart monarchies to Ireland through a manipulation of the history of English Ireland. One of the crutches used by these writers was the Marshall Partition of 1247, the topic of my paper today. So before I can progress further it's worthwhile spending some time to establish the context. So in the mid-1160s, the King of Leinster, Dermid MacMurricada, was ousted from his kingship by the High King of Ireland, Ruri O'Conquebar, for Dermot's supporting of Ruri's rival for the throne. Dermot, however, would not lie down without a fight, and so he journeyed first to Bristol, then to France to speak to King Henry II of England, and finally to the marches of South Wales, where he found Richard Fitzgilbert de Clare, the great Strongbow. With his English allies, Dermot returned to Ireland with a vengeance, reclaimed the kingship of Leinster and set his eyes on the biggest prize of all, the High Kingship of Ireland. All of this did come at a price though, for Dermot married his daughter Aoife to Strongbow, a moment magnificently portrayed here by Daniel MacLeese against the backdrop of the smouldering ruins of Waterford. The true effects of this marriage were manifested in 1171, when time finally caught up with Dermot, and he died, paving the way for Strongbow's seizing of Leinster for himself. King Henry II of England quickly journeyed to Ireland to bring his enterprising English barons into line in the winter of 1171 to 1172, during which time he granted the Kingdom of Leinster to Strongbow, now as a lordship, held of the kings of England for 100 knights' fees. That's the method of feudal service. This grant made Strongbow lord over what is now the modern counties of Wexford, Kilkenny, Carlow, Kildare and parts of Leash and Offaly. So Strongbow was only lord of Leinster for around four years because he died in 1176 and as such the lordship of Leinster transferred to royal hands until Strongbow and Aoife's daughter, Isabel de Clare, came of age. Over a decade later, in 1189, Isabel de Clare married the up-and-coming courtier, William Marshall, bringing him vast lands that stretched across Ireland, England, Wales and Normandy. Over the next 50 years, 
Leinster prospered under the Marshall family as the hub of English commercialisation and colonisation in Ireland, successively passing through the hands of four out of five of William Marshall's five sons. Although the future looked bright, disaster struck in November 1245, when Walter Marshall, uh, the fourth son of William Marshall, died childless, having been predeceased by his three elder brothers, all of whom had also died childless. Less than a month later, William Marshall's last surviving son, Anselm, died before he could pay homage for the Marshall lands, bringing the Marshall tenure as Lords of Leinster to a rather unspectacular end. So when a male line of a family died out, the inheritance had to be partitioned, a legal process by which inquisitions were held in order to form extents of the possessions of the deceased so that the lands could be divided equally amongst the heiresses according to annual value. We don't really need to get bogged down, but just kind of give an idea of the complexities, I suppose, of the process. Between 1245 and 1247, the vast transnational lordship of the Marshalls was partitioned, so that each of William Marshall's five daughters received an equal share of the Marshall lands. Now, all of William's daughters had married well, needless to say, and as such, the partition catapulted the comital elite of Plantagenet England into Ireland. Now, these families included the Bigot Earls of Norfolk, the Valences of Pembroke, the Clare Earls of Gloucester, the Frere Earls of Derby, the Boone Earls of Hereford, and the Mortimers of the Welsh March. And it is this mid-13th century partition of the Marshall Estates, and more precisely, the descendants of the five heiresses, that some 16th and 17th century writers later used. And it is four of these writers that I will focus on today. So the first of these writers is English Jesuit Edmund Campion. In his book on the histories of Ireland, Edmund stated that of the pedigree of William Marshall depend many records in Ireland and the Queen's right to Leinster. That is Queen Elizabeth I. Edmund then makes mention of the Marshall partition, saying that from it are descended many noble houses, such as the Mortimers, Bruce's and the Clares, born subjects to the crown. It is interesting that Edmund not only links these families and the Queen to William Marshall, but his genealogical discussion actually begins with Walter Fitzrichard, who came from Normandy with William the Conqueror, and then passes through the Clare line to Strongbow and then to the Marshalls, consequently linking the Queen and members of the nobility to one of the original conquerors of 1066. The next writer I'll discuss has given us the most detailed discussion of the partition. He's the Welsh clergyman Meredith Hanmer. Hanmer begins with an overview of the Marshalls and how William's five daughters had been honourably matched in the lifetime of their father. Meredith takes this further, however, and draws in many of the baronial elite of the intervening century through each of the five lines. So, for instance, Joan Marshall is linked to the Hastings, the Greys of Rutland, the Talbot family and the Earl of Atoll. Maud Marshall had married a bigot Earl of Norfolk and Hanmer discusses how their daughter married Gilbert Lacey, with their two daughters going on to marry into the Joinville and Verdon families, from whom the Earl of Shrewsbury, the Earl of Essex and Roger Mortimer, the first Earl of March, are descended. William Marshall's third daughter had married Gilbert de Clare, the Earl of Gloucester, from whom the Spencers, the Audleys and the Burr Earls of Ulster are tied in. Sybil Marshall had married a Freres Earl of Derby, and their daughter married William de Vesky. But this share reverted to the crown, and then was granted to the infamous John Fitz Thomas, 
the first Earl of Kildare in the late 13th century. So William's youngest daughter, Eve, married William the Browse of Gower, whose daughters went on to marry into the Mortimer, Boone Earls of Hereford, and the Cantalup families. So in the 16th century, an admittedly small sample, it's clear that these two writers were interested in tracing the descendants of the nobility. But in the following century, however, the focus turns to kings. So it's the writing of the Archbishop of uh, Tomb, John Lynch, on the martial partition that I find the most interesting. In his Cambrensis Aversus, Lynch uses a number of genealogies to argue James I writes, James I right to rule Ireland. In chapter 27, titled The Vindication of the Sovereign and Legitimate Dominion of the Kings of England over Ireland, in answer to those who condemn or assail the preceding chapters. And needless to say, it does exactly what it says on the tin. And Lynch uses the martial partition to argue that James I is descended from Edmund Mortimer who he calls Earl of March, but in actuality was the father of the first Earl of March, the grandson of Eva de Browse, who was the daughter of William Marshall and Isabel de Clare. The line then follows through Isabel to her father, Strongbow, and her mother, Aoife, the daughter of Dermot MacMorricada, who Lynch then links all the way back to Dermot's great-grandfather, Dermot MacMahon Namo, who put the South Linster Kingdom of Ekenslig on the map in the second half of the 11th century. It's important that John Lynch is not just linking James I to kings of Leinster, but Lynch further claims that James I is descended from high kings of Ireland. So Dermot MacMahon for example, is described as king of Ireland, and that's certainly a stretch. And from Dermot, James I is descended from eight more Leinster kings of Ireland, all the way back to the pre-Christian period. For John Lynch, this is part of a wider argument, and he does the same with the kings of Connacht, Lynch first links James I to the Mortimer line again, but then he follows the Burr line to the early 13th century King of Connacht, Cottle, Crovderg, O'Conquebar. Through James I's link to Cottle, Lynch argues that James is further descended from 35 kings of Connacht and Ireland, all the way back again to prehistory, an illustrious descent to say the least. Through this utilisation of genealogies, John Lynch is arguing that James I is not just hereditary King of Ireland through his title as King of England, but he is directly descended from a host of historic king, High Kings of Ireland. Needless to say, I'm not the first to note this fact, but I think it hasn't previously no, been noted quite how much Lynch's argument derives from the partition of the martial lordship of Leinster. Um, the last writer that I will discuss is the Irish lord with lands in Connacht and likely former student of the previously mentioned John Lynch, Roderick O'Flaherty. O'Flaherty is a strong supporter of the Stuart dynasty, and in his text, he attempts to portray the accession of James I as the restoration of a native monarchy in Ireland. Although O'Flaherty is using the... Although he's not using the Marshall family directly, it is clear that he is using the Marshall partition nonetheless, in his discussion of the descent of the Stuart monarchs, Roderick uses Roger Mortimer, first Earl of March, to connect to Eva de Brose, daughter of William Marshall and Isabel, whom he calls Elizabeth, who herself was a daughter of Strongbow and Aoife, daughter of Dermot MacMurricada, King of Ireland, according to Roderick. Now, this is yet again another interesting attempt to link James I to previous kings of Ireland, however, at this time being Dermot MacMurricada, the banished King of Leinster, who first sought English support in the 1160s. And although Dermot certainly aspired to be King of Ireland, it remained a dream more than a reality. 
So what can these four separate narratives tell us about the 16th and 17th centuries and the writings therein? These four writers had lived very different lives, followed different Christian traditions, had different political beliefs, and their texts had different audiences and purposes. Yet, all four used the martial partition of 1247 to link contemporary nobility and royalty to the martial Earls of Pembroke and Lords of Leinster, and from there back into the Clare or the E. Kinsley kingship lines. In this regard, for each of the writers, the Mortimer family provide the key link in the chain in linking the monarchs to the Marshall family and then to either Kings of Ireland, as done by John Lynch and Roderick O'Flaherty, or a knight in the retinue of William the Conqueror in 1066, as done by Edmund Campion. There are also further similarities if one divides the writers by the century in which they were writing. So Campion and Hanmer in the 16th century, and Lynch O'Flaherty in the 17th. For Campion and Hanmer, their focus is to use the martial partition to emphasise the descent of English nobility. Lynch and O'Flaherty, on the other hand, both of whom had lived under the mailed fist of Cromwellian dispensation, were longing for a monarchy with what they viewed as a historic connections to the great Irish kings of Ireland, the martial partition providing the key link in a long chain. Now, just to start wrapping it up. In the early 16th century, commentators on the state of Ireland and promoting plans for its reformation viewed the death of the Earl Marshal in the 13th century and consequent fracture of English power in Ireland as one of the causes of the later rebellions against the King in Ireland. When Sir John Davies was writing in the early 17th century as to why Ireland was never subdued, one of the major problems he identified with colonial Ireland was that lords such as William Marshall had royal authority throughout all that province. And after the Marshall partition, the co-partners severely exercised the same jurisdiction royal with which the Earl Marshall and his sons had used in the whole province. I think that is against this backdrop of the contraction and re-expansion of centralised English crown power in Ireland during the 16th and 17th centuries that the subtle manipulation of history by Campion, Hanmer, Lynch and O'Flaherty belongs. And indeed, I, I think this can actually be linked to Professor Brendan Kane's talk yesterday, this kind of political discourse, you know, if even an appendix. Although the power of autonomous lords, such as the marshals, was seen as to the detriment of centralised power, for John Lynch and Roderick O'Flaherty in particular, strong centralised English royal power could be justified not just because the Stuart dynasty traced descent from the ancient kings of Ireland and Scotland, but because part of their legitimacy to rule derived from the Marshall, partition, the Marshall family and the 13th century partition of their estates. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. You can access the entire archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.